All right, gentlemen, looks like we're at time, so we can go ahead and get started here. We'll be picking back up uh, mid-argument in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So we'll do just a touch of backtrack to try to bring us up to speed and get a view for how his rhetoric is functioning in this section. And as I mentioned last week and went into Oh, not so I was going to bring my book of Concord over. I forgot that. Well, maybe we'll do that another time. Um, but as I was mentioning last week and uh, teaching last week, so much of this epistle is contrary to popular Christianity and even some forms of popular Lutheranism that we find. It's really refreshing. It's really one of these uh, texts that pulls back the veil on a lot of the cliched sorts of statements that are made in in theology these days. So we'll jump back in, but before we do, let's open up with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may you bless us with that wisdom that is in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. May he bless us by pouring out his Holy Spirit upon us, that our hearts and minds might be enlightened to the truth of your word and to the meaning of that truth in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so just getting a big picture here, the problem that Paul is addressing first shows its face in chapter 1, right around verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And so their boast is in these men individually, and then their boast is ultimately in themselves as these discerning sort of super Christians. That's what's in view. We, of course, have this lengthy section about the word of the cross being the wisdom and the power of God, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, with a point, an important rhetorical point being made in chapter 1, verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So you can see the way the argument's tracking. They're boasting in men, which is a subtle way of boasting in themselves. And Paul's rhetoric is working so that they would boast not in themselves or in men, but in the Lord and in him alone. Then at chapter 2, verse 1, it's important for us to backtrack and get a running start. Otherwise, we're going to lose the forest for the trees. So let's just pick up at chapter 2, 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And that's the key word to kind of grasp a hold of. Because he's going to say in verse 6, amongst the mature, we do impart wisdom. Even there, you can see implied that they are not wise when he first comes to them, nor in their boasting after men. Do they show themselves to be wise at the present? So I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And again, we talked about some of the miracles, but also the conversion that's working through this plain speech that those who did not believe now believe. And Paul isn't engaged in any of the highfalutin rhetoric of the time. He's just straightforward proclaiming Christ crucified, which again is not really palatable to unbelieving Jews or unbelieving Gentiles. The one seeks signs, the other human wisdom. And then Paul gives the reason for this in verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, me or Apollos, Cephas, or anybody else, but rather in the power of God. Verse 6, yet among the mature, the teleois, we do impart wisdom. And that's, that's going to be one of We've already had some, but in terms of our class tonight, the first of many counter-modern Christendom points, that there are the mature and immature in the faith. 
So yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So before the ages, God decreed or ordained this hidden wisdom unto our glory. God could foresee the fall of humanity into sin. God planned to save the elect. God planned to send his son to die for the sins of the world. And God planned for the revelation of this secret wisdom that is now come in the New Testament age in in the time of St. Paul. And that's where he's going. So, Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So again, this is God's hidden wisdom, not understood by the rulers of this age, the small g gods of this world, who arranged to have Christ put to death, and in putting him to death, they did the one thing that would result in their losing power and they're losing the status of small g gods just marvelous marvelous at verse 9 we see paul quoting from the old testament yet again and we will continue to see him quote from the old testament throughout this epistle really doing sola scriptura theology himself and a point he's going to make obvious in the verses to come but here from isaiah 64 But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So again, you can see how it's hidden. Eye hasn't seen it, ear hasn't heard it, heart hasn't imagined it. These things that God has prepared for those who love him. But then look at verse 10. These things God has revealed, a pekalupsin, to us through the Spirit. So that is, as of the first century, as of the coming of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, this revelation of the secret wisdom of God has now come by way of the Holy Spirit. So far, so good? Okay. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, here's the analogy for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So we are we are constituted in such a way, at least at present, that the only one that truly knows what is inside of a person is that very person. And that's the analogy then. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So it would literally take the Spirit of God to reveal to us the thoughts of God. God's a closed book, just as we are closed books, uh, one to another. Unless there is revelation of self. So then, 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. What is the spirit of the world? Yeah, exactly. In short, Satan. Now, his whole mini pantheon of small g gods who rule over the nations. And that is, in effect, the spirit of the world. And what they are doing as this sort of supra-intelligence is commonly referred to as the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. So we can detect in in every, let's say, century or every era uh, of history what what is the zeitgeist what is the spirit of the age and the way of thinking about that is the way of thinking what the supra intelligences the rulers of this present age are concocting and doing so as much as as much as we might say well okay there's a cabal of elites somewhere that is poisoning the world and driving us toward a one world government and all of this Uh, They're doing so over the course of decades, over the course of more than a century. How is that possible? Easily possible if you realize that there's a super intelligence that animates them. 
so that things align in such a way that no, no human being sitting at the top is actually puppet mastering and pulling all the strings, but there is an intelligence. There are intelligences that are the rulers of this age. So we have not received the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God. And these two things could not be further opposed to one another. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the secret counsels of God's own mind are made known to us by his spirit now in these last days. Then verse 13, and we impart this in words. The we here is probably the apostles as he's going to carry on, probably even he and Apollos. But it is the role of the apostles to impart this wisdom of God given through the Holy Spirit. In words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So we're going to see then a juxtaposition between those who are spiritual and those who are of the flesh. So you can see already um, hints at what will become clear as a, a kind of double division. In the first place, there are those who are of the spirit of the world and those who are of the spirit of God. That's the first division. Then of those who are of the spirit of God, there are the mature and the immature. Even within that camp of those who are of the spiritual spirit of God, there are those who are spiritual and those who are fleshly. That's what's coming next. Both of those points are very controversial and contrary to the egalitarianism of our age where we want to say that Oh, every Christian is exactly the same. St. Paul clearly disagrees. Likewise, taken to an extreme, there are some who even say there's no difference between a believer and an unbeliever, except maybe the believer knows how bad he is or something like that. St. Paul would have no time for that theology. There's a profound difference between believer and unbeliever, a difference as great as light and darkness. And by the way, that was the quote, I'll bring it in next week if I can remember, from the Book of Concord, because they too mimic uh, the great reformers in the formula of Concord, mimic this theology of St. Paul, say there's a huge, vast difference between those who believe and are baptized and those who don't. And then even amongst those who believe and are baptized, there's differences. And in fact, over the course of one's life and one's Christian life, You can even see times in which you're weak and times in which you're strong, times in which you're more of a fleshly Christian and more of a spiritual Christian. But the goal being that the progression of the Christian life is one of maturation, being conformed ever more into the image of Christ and growing ever more spiritual as opposed to ever more fleshly. Okay, so again, just to recap that those final words of 13, interpreting spiritual truths, that's the role of the apostles as they impart the wisdom of God and as they interpret the spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That, by the way, is exactly what Paul's doing by citing the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures all the way through. He's interpreting these spiritual truths to be received by those who are spiritual. All right, at 14, then, the natural person, the psychikos anthropos, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, pneumaticos. So you have the sukukos versus honomatikos, the natural person. It's hard to translate, but the natural person versus the spiritual person. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? And this is a kind of antithetical or contrary uh, statement of scripture. He's going to play against this. So quoting here in verse 16, Isaiah 40, verse 13, 
for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, the immediate answer from these scriptures would be no one, no one has understood the mind of God. Then look what Paul says next that's absolutely stunning. But we have the mind of Christ. That is, we do comprehend these inner things of God because through the giving of the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. Now, the we here, again, I would I would assert to you, Paul has in mind primarily the apostles. If you want, given what follows more narrowly, he and Apollos, it's fine. The apostles. Now, by extension, it's true for all of us as Christians, because, and especially true in context, because Paul's going to say we ought to be imitators of him. We ought to be like him. We, too, ought to have the mind of Christ and the Holy Spirit and understand spiritual things and interpret spiritual things just as Christians. No need for a division at chapter 3, verse 1, because he simply is continuing on with the argument. But I, brothers, could not address you as honomaticos, the same thing, just the plural, as spirituals or as spiritual people, but rather as fleshlies or as people of the flesh. And in case you're thinking, he's like, oh, I could only come to you as if you were unbelievers, he Look at the final clause, as infants in Christ. So the way Paul is using here fleshlies or people of the flesh, they're nonetheless Christians. They're just infants, uh, napioes in Christ. So Paul's going to say, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh, sarkikoi. You are still fleshlies. Okay, so let's let's do a little thinking here. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk. What is the milk? That's the, what he earlier said, I just... Didn't have the wise things and stuff. I just started with like the gospel. Bingo. Yeah. So this this milk then has to be identified as in Paul's rhetoric, uh, going back to verse two of chapter two. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now you don't start babies off with solid food. It's going to be a disaster if you try. So the gospel of Christ crucified is necessary. It's essential. It's the milk that gets you to mature onto being able to handle solid food. But again, you can see how a kind of shift has happened, even in modern Lutheranism, where we preach Christ crucified as if that were the telos, as if that were the the end-all, be-all. And in fact, in Paul's rhetoric, it's like saying, we, we, we give only milk. We because we we have only infants, you see. So we all as we all begin as infants, we all need Christ crucified as that milk. But as we grow, we become uh, those who are prepared for solid food. Again, look at verse six. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And then he goes on to talk about this, what the Spirit reveals and what is spiritually interpreted and spiritually understood. Those are the things that are um, built upon Christ crucified, or those are the things that one moves from milk into solid food. So I, brothers, could not address you, 3-1, as spirituals, but as fleshlies, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Paul says, I've got the solid food, and I'll give it to you. It's just you weren't ready for it, and even now you're not yet, re- yet ready. For you are still fleshlies, you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are, are you not, uh, yeah, sorry, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in an uh, anthropone, uh, human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, so now we're back to where we began at 112, 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely anthropoi, merely men? And of course, he means that in a derogatory sense. Uh, worldlings, naturals, fleshlies. Okay, so we see then at this point that Paul's entire rhetoric from 112 all the way to this point at uh, 3, 4, 3, 5, um, we see that he's making one cohesive argument. And he will continue to do so, by the way. Let's pause there before we uh, allow St. Paul to kind of recap, because as you look ahead to five, he's going to say, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? And he's going to carry on the argument. But let me pause there and see if everything's setting right, if everything's making sense. Yes, sir. It's a good question. So for those of you online who probably couldn't hear it, and as I summarize it, correct me if I'm not summarizing it correctly. The question is effectively, does our growth continue as we get to heaven? Or does our growth continue um, even unto the ne- in, in and through the next stage as we're in the new heavens and the new earth? Is that a fair representation of your question? It is somewhat of an open question, but I feel very strongly and believe very strongly that there is continued growth and development in heaven, which is the intermediate stage, and in the new heavens and the new earth. That is, uh, I can find proof texts all over the place, but especially you can look to Revelation for a development and a healing that takes place in the intermediate state and with the healing of the nations in the new heavens and the new earth. But St. Paul also says that in Ephesians, that it is the wisdom and plan of God that in the ages to come, he might reveal more and more of his grace unto us. So I look at that as a continued receipt of the things of God and just ever more fully growing in the knowledge of God, the love of God, the experience of God, not trying to silo it off in any way, just everything holistically. So perpetual growth in the Lord and just this beautiful paradox of we're all going to be as close to him as we can ever be. And yet at the same time, we'll be growing perpetually closer. Good question. The spiritual thing you want to talk about is almost like you want to go back in the Old Testament to Elijah when they had that little thing with it. A couldn't see the soldiers around, camped around us, you know, them said, hey, they're going to attack us. And mm-hmm. He said, open his eye. The other one would be Daniel when he's yeah. getting the vision. And yeah. he says, hey, I couldn't come because those principalities are there that we can't see. Yeah, exactly. So Chris brings up a point, and I'll probably uh, not say it nearly as eloquently, but to summarize, even in the Old Testament scriptures, There are people who can see things that other people can't, including the heavenly armies gathered around at one point. So the church fathers and um, the Lutherans took this up as well. And it's something we've lost sight of entirely is the idea of a corresponding fivefold spiritual sense. So you have physical sight, but there's spiritual sight, right? And that spiritual sight isn't just pure metaphor, the way we kind of make a break between like reality or uh, like a literal seeing and then a metaphorical seeing. But in fact, they're much more closely blurred together. So I'll give you an example. It's just a very common one that I bring up all the time. And I got it more or less from Luther. Luther says that amongst the created order of God, the created beings of God, the sun is the great, the physical sun is the greatest creature of Christ. Because it is constantly by its light, by its dying and rising, you know, perceptually it's, it's setting and rising every day. Um, it is constantly preaching to us, uh, who Christ is. Christ is not just the light that we see. He's the light by which we see. Apart from him is darkness. Christ is the warmth. Christ is that which gives growth and all other blessings. Apart from Christ, there is no life. Just as apart from the sun, there is no life. 
and so on and so forth. Okay, so if you what how how then should we say if I am a young man and I look at the sun and I know Christ and I and but I look at the sun I say ah it's just a gaseous ball of light. That's all it is. I'm I'm seeing with earthly eyes, but I'm not seeing with spiritual sight. The spiritual sight is to look upon the things of creation and see God's manifestation through them. So we even have this in our liturgy, which is utterly forgotten. But heaven is full of his glory. We know that. That would be obvious. But what is what do we say in the liturgy? Heaven and earth is filled with his glory. And by the way, the Psalms say as much. So spiritual sight increases as we begin to perceive very tangibly the spiritual reality, the glory of God that interpenetrates all things. Okay, now in the same way that I've tried to then explain what spiritual sight is, uh, the church fathers and the Lutherans too will go into um, talking about spiritual hearing, which is easy, but also spiritual taste. Spiritual touch, spiritual sight. I like spiritual taste because, you know, are there not Christians that have really poor spiritual taste? <laughs> let's let's get rid of these uh, rich, profound hymns and just take some modern tripe and, and pablum. Take the latest, uh, you know, romantic song and just pencil in the name of Jesus. So there was a, there was a South Park episode where the Henri, the most Henri of the characters, Cartman, he's the chubby uh, kind of obnoxious one, but he decides he's going to start a Christian worship band. And so, <laughs> and so he, he does just this. He gets these lyrics. I love you so much. Jesus. And he becomes very popular, right? So here's bad spiritual taste here's spiritual taste buds that just love uh the greasiest dirtiest hamburger you can imagine and can't ascend beyond that or the most microwaved pizza you can comprehend and can't transcend beyond that all right so spiritual taste spiritual sight spiritual touch and spiritual smell so on and so forth these things, uh, these concepts were developed in their sermons and their preaching. And so um, it's it's something that I hope to integrate in into my own thinking, my own preaching as well, because it's necessary for all of us to embrace these, these concepts that are thoroughly biblical. I mean, even just think of like taste and see that the Lord is good. That's a reference to spiritual taste. All right. Well, maybe enough on that. Any other thoughts before we jump back in? Yeah. So sir. what is the solid food? That's a great question. So the solid food, Paul doesn't even explain. Now, it's it's arguable that he goes into some of the solid food as we progress along. So we can keep an eye out for that. You know, a really similar sentiment is expressed in Hebrews 6. This isn't the only place in which the New Testament um, has this concept uh, and sometimes people stumble over this, but hopefully Hebrews 6 will make a lot more sense to you now in light of what St. Paul's saying. Of course, there are uh, some and historically uh, many who have held that Paul himself is the author of Hebrews 6, but that aside, or the author of Hebrews, that, that aside, whatever you think there, it doesn't matter because the author of Hebrews shares a very similar thought. So just uh, keeping one finger here on 1 Corinthians 3 5 and then flipping forward to hebrews 6 1 look how look how uh, scandalous this is to our modern ears and yet it shouldn't be therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of christ the elementary teachings about christ and go on to maturity Look, there's a progress and a growth. Let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation. So here the foundation, not just Christ crucified, but the foundation being repentance from dead works. That's pretty basic, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's essential to be reminded of the basics, but it's basic. Repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So repentance and faith, the, these are foundational things. 
and of instruction about washings, literally baptisms. So baptismal theology, as much as it's profound and you can go in depth and it can become advanced, is in and of itself elementary. What is a baptism? I mean, you get in the shower to wash away dirt from your body. What do you think this washing is? Washing away of the dirt of sin. It's not rocket science. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. So instruction about washings is included in the elementary things. So also the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So again, at 6.1, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Well, what is that maturity? Um, At verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those, and then he goes on. So if you were to ask the author of Hebrews, what is the solid food? Or what is uh, the mature teaching? It would be the recognition that Christ is the new temple, the new priest, the new sacrifice, the new Melchizedek. From the author of Hebrews standpoint, it would be what we call typology. It would be understanding the Old Testament shadows and how those are now revealed in the fullness of their glory in Christ. So understanding the whole of the Old Testament scriptures and the whole of creation and the whole of history as all being the ongoing revelation, apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. So that we would evermore, in short, so that we would evermore see that not only the heavens, but also the earth are filled, or the earth is filled with his glory. Going back to the discussion you had on the road to Emmaus, going back to the Old Testament, hey, not going to get it right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's all kinds of subtleties and sophistications that we're going to get into in uh, 1 Corinthians itself, which is why I think that Paul does end up slowly, now that he's chastised them for being immature, he's going to try to start to feed them with some of that solid food. So stay tuned for uh, what Paul himself will then give in the in the chapters to come. All right, so um, putting those two thoughts together here, 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 6, Make some sense? Okay. All right. Good, good. So, you know, we preach Christ crucified as a slogan. What do you think of it? I think it's okay. <laughs> but it's not quite what we, it, it does not quite mean what we think it means. You keep using that word. It does not mean what you think it means. Uh, so that's um, that's worthwhile. It's worth keeping in mind. Jumping back into the rhetoric of Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, then at verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Diakonoi, which is uh, servants, um, which of course would be like attendants or waiters. We are attendants or waiters through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. So again, it's not our doing, it's not your doing, it's the Lord's doing. So the the Lord has assigned to each person faith. And Paul will say elsewhere, faith in different measure as well. Okay, as uh, diaconoi, attendants, waiters, or servants, Paul goes on to say, and, and he shifts metaphors here a bunch, but God thinks we can handle it. So verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, clearly agricultural imagery, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants, Paul, nor he who waters, Apollos, is anything, just mere instruments, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. They're one tool through which God works. And, of course, they're working in harmony together toward the same end, namely that God would give growth in the field. He who plants and he who waters are one. So, again, what what is of their boast? You know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. 
we're one and we're nothing because the most important thing is God who gives the growth. So why on earth are you boasting in us and thereby boasting in yourselves over and against one another? Again, he's going to say boast in God. So he who plants, verse 8, and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages, his misthone or reward, according to his labor, a cop on or literally pains. So there is a reward for those who plant and those who water according to their pains or their labors, and they will receive from God a reward. One reward to one, another reward to another. For we, and again, generally speaking, the apostles, narrowly speaking, he and Apollos, for we are God's soon ergoi, fellow workers, which, of course, this language will later become important because you'll have the synergistic controversy, the, the sin, the with, and the ergistic, the ergos, the working together. And synergism is the idea that, I mean, just very broadly speaking, that God does so much, we have to do the rest in order to be saved. That synergy is false and rightly condemned. As we see, even in this context, as the Lord assigned to each, verse 5. So there is no synergism in our salvation, but that doesn't mean there isn't synergism of a different kind. And that synergism is precisely that God has called Paul and Apollos to be fellow workers with him, soon ergoi with him. Then he says to the Christians in Corinth, you are God's field. So the agricultural language continues and then shifts God's building. Before we shift on to God's building and the architectural motif, let's pause there and see if everything makes sense in terms of Paul's argument and in terms of broader theology here in the verses we've covered in this section. Everybody tracking? Building the church? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the field, the building, and then ultimately what Paul's going to do with it is the temple. So we're going really back to Isaiah again. That's what Isaiah is talking about. Yeah, and and you can think of Hebrews, you can think of this whole tying in, that the height of Christian theology is in these profound mysteries. So, you know, again, I'll, I'll say it as many times as I can, the whole Zionistic idea that's just captured American Christianity, that we're all waiting for something to happen in Israel, is just the furthest thing from biblical Christianity you can have. The idea that we're all waiting for the temple to rebuild is be rebel is completely contrary to what Paul says when he says to the first century Christians, you are the temple of God. It's here. This is the end times temple. Okay. So we can also, in tracking with St. Paul's argument, especially as it progresses into the imagery of the temple, we can uh, flush our systems of the whole Zionistic trend of modern Christianity. And we can cleanse ourselves from the dispensational system that undergirds that. Uh, dispensationalism being invented in the 19th century by John Nelson Darby. This idea that depends on who's the dispensationalist, that there are seven dispensations, sometimes more, sometimes less. But these different covenants that God has with his people and salvation and the, the life with God. It takes on these different shapes or these different forms within each dispensation. And a lot of this is uh, undergirds the idea that, you know, God is going to save us through Christ, but he's going to save his Jewish people in some other way through some mass conversion in the end. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a crass form of dispensationalism. The dispensationalist then thing under the covenant, right? Is that how they interpret it? That's how they, yeah, I mean, that's how dispensationalists try to interpret it, yes. Um, but what I what I hope you see is even in a, in a passage like this, and especially what's to come, you'll see how that system just makes no sense. 
And you can also see why it took like 1800 years for it to be invented. So the scripture says they don't, the New Testament, when he's given the, you know, the body and blood, mm -hmm. this is it. This is the New Testament. Right. This is the New Covenant. Full stop. There's not going to be another new covenant. Right. Again, if you, uh, and Chris brings up a great point. If you, if you ask Jesus, Jesus, what is the new Testament? And then you start with Matthew and end at revelation. You read all the red letters in only one historical place, but really four places recorded will you find Jesus telling us what the New Testament is. And he says, this is the New Testament in my blood. As he takes the cup and says, drink of it. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. So what is the New Testament according to Jesus? It's the blood that he shed once and for all on the cross being distributed to us. That's the New Testament. There is no other New Testament. So again, you have a you have a vantage point to see then those Christian traditions that the Lord's Supper just isn't a part of it, or just, just a memorial meal that we do maybe quarterly or once every couple years, and it's not a big deal. You can see how far away they've gone from biblical and historic Christianity. Okay, so lots lots can be gleaned um, from these uh, words of Saint Paul. So then we've got the end of the agricultural motif, sort of, or at least the fuller treatment of it at the end of verse 9, and then the introduction of the Christians in Corinth, and of course the larger church in view as well, as God's building. And then verse 10 follows up with that motif, according to the grace of God given to me. So again, it's just beautiful in understanding Paul sees himself as a soon ergoi, as a fellow worker with God, and yet not in such a way as if they were like two oxen pulling a cart. That's the language from the confessions. But he is a fellow worker, and even so, his work is according to the grace of God given to him. So he's not going to boast in that. Once more, verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled architecton, like a skilled architect, a master builder, I laid a foundation. Now, Paul's talking very concretely here about Corinth. He literally laid the foundation there. So some other church somewhere else, he would say, yeah, that, that missionary or that evangelist or that preacher, he laid the foundation so he's saying, I laid the foundation there in Corinth. Like a skilled architect or master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it, namely the pastors that follow him. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. And it's my role here at Faith. Somebody else laid the foundation here. And I've seen builders come before me and they're building and I'm paying attention to what they're building. And I'm building too. And after me, God willing, there'll be somebody else building. Okay? So let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And I think that takes us back to Christ crucified. That takes us back to the milk. That takes us back to the foundation. It's essential. It's necessary. It's not the only thing there is. Yes, sir. Yeah, coming right up. Uh, Paul, yeah, Paul's going to bring that exact imagery up. Yeah, you want to hit that and then see if you got a question remaining? Okay, good. Okay, so verse 12 then. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, of course, Jesus Christ and him crucified. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. That is, will become revealed for the day, this for Paul is the day of judgment, will disclose it. How so? Because it will be revealed by 
fire. And there's the apocalyptite, the unveiling by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. Now, you'll notice that gold, silver, and precious stones are fireproof. That's the point. Whereas wood, hay, and straw are definitively not. <laughs> and maybe something else to take to heart, that gold, silver, and precious stones take a lot of time to acquire and to build. And because of that, they might not look all that impressive, especially when compared to the huge edifice that can be very quickly put up with wood, hay, and straw. And that, I think, is a parable for a lot of what's gone on in America, where you look at these really impressive facades that are erected overnight, and they're wood, hay, and straw. They look impressive right now, and everybody goes, oh, the Holy Spirit must be moving. And are they fireproof? That's the real question. And the answer there is almost always no. So this is, again, just very strong encouragement for those. You know, Paul says not many of you are wise, not many of you are of noble birth, not many of you. Some of us are, <laughs> and that's okay. That's implied by Christ's word. The, the kind of pastors you want are those who are wise in the Lord and those who are building with gold, silver, and precious stones, not those who are foolish and building with wood, hay, and straw. So what do I look forward to as a teacher in God's church? I look forward to the testing of my labors in Christ. As a builder who's followed after one who has laid the foundation I'm building, that's going to be tested with fire. Whatever I've erected that's wood, hay, and stubble is going to be consumed. Whatever is gold, silver, or precious stones is going to remain. So that is highly in my view because I'm going to be judged if I'm a Christian or not, if I'm saved or not. But the next question is going to be, how did I build? And you're going to see St. Paul draw that out in the verses to come. So each one's, uh, back at 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day. Capital D is right. This is the judgment. We'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a misstone, a reward. Same same exact language that we saw earlier in 8. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So there will be pastors who spent their entire lives building with wood, hay, and stubble. Will they be saved? If they believe in Christ, they will but they may suffer the loss of their entire life, their entire life's work in ministry as it's all consumed by fire. So they will suffer loss. So the stakes are high for teachers. And you can see why, why um, James will say, let not many of you, my brothers, become teachers. But there's a stricter or greater judgment. And that's what's being talked about here. It's like judgment one, are you in or out? Okay, you're in. Judgment two, how did you build? Yes, sir. So this is relevant to teachers only, or this would be individual play? It's a great question if this has broader application to all Christians, and it is somewhat of an open question. Okay. Um, it, that is to say, when I say an open question, I mean you could hold either view and not be condemned, even though clearly one view or the other is right. So we'll have to wait for Christ to disclose that. On account of Paul saying, be imitators of me, I think that we all as Christians ought to live this way. So whether it's concretely true or not, we all ought to have in mind to be imitators of St. Paul, to lay the foundation of Christ, and to build in all of our vocations with gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, the gold, silver, and precious stones, um, there's a descending order there of value, but these are also the elements that adorn the temple of God. So that's why he's going to get into the temple and why he's chosen this imagery. Whereas uh, wood, hay, and straw likewise have a descending order there, a descending hierarchy. But of course, they're not fireproof. Um, when uh, I don't know of any hay or straw being used in the temple. When wood is used, it's covered in gold. 
so that it's fireproof. So just talking about the temple architecture, which obviously he's driving us toward here. All right, so very important to drink in this idea. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So as this, as this applies, or insofar as it applies to, to all of us as Christians, or to the broader church and, and our vocational works, you know, sometimes we'll, people will say, well, isn't the only thing that really matters faith in Jesus? It doesn't really matter how wrong you are, how much false doctrine you teach, how little good works you do, how many sins you commit. It doesn't matter. All that really matters is faith. Well, is that true or false? Yeah, it's kind of got, I mean, there's there's a kind of truth to it. I mean, you're going to be saved, and ultimately that's a heck of a lot better than being damned. But is that really all there is to it? No. And so that's that's the sense in which you're saying it's false, is these things are of the utmost importance and value, um, second only to one's salvation. So, of course, and throwing out the whole meaning and purpose of our lives, you know, and that is a that is a sort of miss a very common misunderstanding of the gospel is if I understand the gospel that I'm saved apart from works, then works don't matter. And what I'm doing here has no meaning. It has no value. God doesn't care. And in fact, any attempt is some sort of assault against the doctrine of justification or assault against my salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So I'm not even a try. I'm going to mark my orthodoxy by living a scandalous life. You can see how upside down this is. And you can see how St. Paul here in this section thoroughly corrects all of that. Yes, sir. I was just going to use this as me coming out of the LDS phase. One of the things that I tell people is coming out of Mormonism, Mormonism, you do good works, you eventually possibly become saved. Right. As Christians, you do good works because you are saved. Great point. difference on how you live a lifestyle. Great point. So just to uh, restate that for those of you online, um, he mentioned uh, his previous uh, religion being the LDS uh, Mormons, and you do good works in hope of being saved. But in Christianity, it's rather the opposite. It's because you are saved, you do good works. So a great point made. Thank you. All right, then let's go on to 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? So we've all been driving to this point. So God's field, God's building, God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys or defiles, it could go either way. If anyone destroys God's temple, defiles God's temple, then God will destroy or defile him. It's a pretty, pretty strong warning against false teachers. And a big dose of sobriety and humility for all of us as Christians. If anyone defiles or destroys God's temple, God will defile or destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Worthwhile noting, though, too, that it's not Paul's temple or Apollo's temple. But God's temple. And then here we get to the kind of puffed up, which which is the, the pervasive sin of the Corinthians, is this being puffed up, this boasting in men, boasting in themselves, boasting in their spiritual tastes. So do you not know that you are God's temple? And then you, that is to say you belong to God. And then 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, Paul is going back to that thought paradigm that he introduces to us back in chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross being the wisdom of God, the power of God, etc. So here's uh, his preaching of humility to the Corinthians and by extension to us. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool according to this age, that he may become wise, the point being, may become wise to God or unto God. 
For the wisdom of this world is folly or foolishness with God. So again, wisdom of this world is in contrast and contradiction with the wisdom of God. So if you think you're wise in this world, don't try to integrate that with, with Christ. That frankly is, I mean, to go back to the study that Vicar led us through, that's really the attempt of trying to take modern science and, you know, this scientism, in fact, and the theory of evolution and wed that with Christianity. You've got worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, and you're trying to weave those two things together by saying God made the world, not in six days, but in six non-literal days that are ages upon ages. Okay, you can't, you're not fooling God, you're not fooling anyone else who has eyes to see This is the wisdom of the world trying to be integrated with the wisdom of God. You've got to become a fool to the world that you can become wise unto God. So an application of that then. For it is written, and Paul still thoroughly doing his sola scriptura theology. Here, the first citation is from Job 5.13. It's wonderful. And uh, Psalm 94.11 is the second quotation. And both of these use almost identical language. So first quotation, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, here's the quotation then from Psalm 94, 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So the wisdom of this world is just a snare and a trap. And God entraps the wise with their own wisdom, which it's all folly to him. It's all foolishness to him. And then here then would be in 21, a major point in Paul's rhetoric, a major thesis, subthesis. So let no one boast in men, not the wise of this world, not Paul or Apollos or Cephas. But rather, as he said earlier, back at chapter one, verse 31, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. He goes on to say, you know, let no one boast in men. Why? All things are yours. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. That's the height to which he's elevated you. So the sectarianism and the Hey, I'm of, I'm of this guy and I'm of that clan and we're better than your guy and your clan. I mean, this is all the utterly foolish and upside down way of thinking. What is proper to think is that all things are already ours as Christians, including the world, including life, including death, present and future, all belong to us, all are, are our possession. Because all things have been given to us in Christ Jesus. We ourselves belong to Christ and Christ himself belongs to God. And there you see an echoing of that order of creation that we're going to get fleshed out for us, where he'll say um, that uh, the father is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of man and man is the head of woman. You already see that here that God possesses Christ, Christ possesses his church, his church possesses all things. So it's a high and lofty place of honor to and glory to which God calls us. And of course, that is uh, back at chapter 2, verse 7. Remember this? We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And here is the glory that all things are ours, and we are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So even if you go back to um, Genesis, remember what the Lord says to Adam and Eve. um, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and have dominion, lordship over it. Lordship over what? Over all created things. It's a restoration of that, but not merely a restoration a fullness and maturation of that lordship where it is the father, the son, and us. So he is, the son is, lord of lords, that's us, and king of kings, that's us, and god of gods, that's us. That's why scripture uses that language. This is the glory 
that is ours, which God decreed before the ages. Chapter 2, verse 7. So that's fleshed out for us here in these verses. Including, I love this, death. To die and rise again, to be faithful unto death, to cling to the one who is true life, is to overcome death and thus to be lords of death. So we will be, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. So much is he a lord over death that he's turned death into a mother. And he's turned death into the source of life and eternal life. And as we join him in that, we are deathless ones. We are conquerors of death. We are others born from death. And we've conquered that greatest of all powers of this age. So our shame becomes our glory in Christ. So why would you ever boast in men? I'm of this guy or I'm of that guy. How petty, how silly. Do you not understand already your status and station, your glory that God has given you in Christ Jesus? Such a great, such a great argument and so filled with gospel and so filled with hope and joy. All right, that's a perfect place to stop. We'll jump into chapter four next week. Let's uh, close up with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.